It's the DEH podcast, episode number 159. I'm Leo Notenboom of askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com. And we're back. Yes. Um, yeah, I uh, I had a good time out on the beach last week. Well, I forget, were you doing anything special last week or was it just nope. my my absence that caused just, us to skip the <laughs> Yes. Yeah, no, it was just a normal week for me. So it's funny. I uh, uh, I had I will call it an experience with my laptop. Um, actually, the weekend before we left for the beach, um, we left on um, Monday. And on Saturday, I had a, a training thing at, a, at the volunteer organization I work with. And I took my laptop along with me just in case we would need it there. Sometimes there's reference material that we'll pull up on that. And I opened it up and I turned it on and it said, no, no boot device, Hmm. Um, which was absolutely completely unexpected. No warnings, no nothing. Um, It was a a situation where, you know, there's just nothing you could do at that point. Um, All I could do is, is uh, we ended up, I think, using my mobile phone for the reference material since it was actually in the cloud. But um, yeah, it was kind of embarrassing to be the tech guy and then have the have the laptop that I always carry with me, not necessarily uh, be up to snuff. To make a very long story short, and for the record, I've written up the long story. It'll be an Ask Leo article here in a, in a week or two. Um, the SSD died suddenly and without warning. It was a, a one terabyte SSD. And what I ended up doing was I, I pulled it out. I got myself a little... Um, external USB SSD enclosure for the M2 uh, form factor, Uh uh, which exists. I didn't know they existed, but that was kind of cool. I figured that way, I didn't at that point know if it was a, uh, the SSD or the motherboard or something else going on. But the, um, uh, you know, my thinking was, well, it's great to have the external enclosure. If I, if the SSD is working great, I've got an external SSD. If it's not working, then I know that I can use this to test and so forth. Um, so that was nice. It confirmed that the SSD had failed completely. I ordered a replacement SSD, tested it with the external enclosure. It worked, replaced it in my uh, in my laptop. That worked, and, and basically, I ended up reinstalling Windows from scratch just because I took the opportunity to upgrade it from a one terabyte to a two terabyte SSD again, okay. just, just because. Yeah. Um, and now I have the the external uh, SSD enclosure, the M.2 enclosure lying around for the next time I either run into a problem or have a leftover M- M2 um, uh, SSD lying around that I want to turn into an external drive. But it was an interesting experience. And I wanted to just throw a real quick plug in for the uh, the laptop manufacturer, which is Frame.Work. Um, mm. it's the, oh, it was that laptop. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, the, it's the one I got. I think it was last October. Yep. And um, what is so nice about this, I mean, it's it's a selling point on their side, and I can confirm it worked really well for me, is that it's been, meant to be repaired. It's meant to be um, opened up by the consumer um, or a technically savvy consumer at any rate um, and have components replaced. Had it turned out to be the motherboard, I could have just ordered a new motherboard and, and replaced it in the machine. So um, it was, and it's very well organized and easy to get to. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I opened up my old MacBook Pro and I think there were like 13 screws that needed to come out. Um, And of course it was a unique 
screwdriver that was necessary to make those happen. Um, this thing has five screws using a standard socket um, and the, the, the components on the inside, to the extent that they use screws, use the same socket size, you know, the same screwdriver size. I mean, it was just, it's a nice experience to actually open up the machine and be able to easily take components out, replace them and that kind of stuff. So it made for easy testing, easy diagnosing and uh, easy repair. So like I said, I actually have two of those machines now. Um, I ended up getting that one in October and have been using it since and continue to be happy with it. Uh, component failure happens. Disk drives, SSDs can and do fail. As I tell my readers often, they can and do fail suddenly and without warning. And that's exactly what happened to me. Um, but I like the machine so much that I actually ended up ordering a second one when I needed to cycle out one of my older machines to, uh, to handle things like my scanners and so forth. So I got... see they've been acquired. Oh, really? Who, who acquired them? Adobe. On oh. the right at frame.io at the top, it says frame.io is now an Adobe company. Uh, it's not frame.io. It's oh. frame.work. Frame. Oh. Well, you know, and the strange thing is actually frame.io is a website that I've used before. So it's uh, probably why it came up. Frame.io is actually a really interesting site. I think we have talked about them before where you can do all your media management for video projects online. I think you've mentioned that somewhere before. Yeah. 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 I used it for a big project where I had lots of 4K video and you basically, you can store tons of stuff like, you know, forget about your local hard drive space. You're basically storing video in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And then if you're working with people, they can actually go through the video and like make notes and annotations and approve things and yeah, so it's kind of interesting, but cool. yes, you're right. Yeah, it no, it makes is... a lot more sense that Adobe owns Frame.io. It's a very exactly. good fit. Whereas, as opposed to Frame.work, which is something entirely frame. different. Frame.org, yeah. So, fr no, Frame.work. Hmm. It's a it's the .work top level domain. Hmm. Interesting. Frame.work. Yeah. Um, it, it takes some getting used to, I guess. It's it's kind of like I I own Leo.coffee, where dot yeah. coffee is the top level domain. So same thing here with dot work. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. It was like I said, it was a it, the timing was horrid because it also meant that I could not take that laptop with me to the beach as I normally do. I ended up taking a Chromebook with me uh, that I had lying around, and that did okay. But there were a couple things that I couldn't do with it. Um, but other than that, um, I'm still very, very happy with the machine. And like I said, I like the fact that I could repair it. So anyway, yeah. what I wanted to, to, to bring up this week as, mm. I don't know if you want to call it our top story, but something that um, happened to pop on my news feed that turned out to be something I've been wondering about myself. And that is an article on the Washington Post. Um, I think it published uh, probably today, the 29th, maybe yesterday, how Ukraine's internet is still working despite Russian bombs and cyber attacks. If you take a look, we've been in this now for a month, right? The, the, the war has been going on for um, at least a month, if not a little bit more. And we continue to get very valuable information out of the Ukraine digitally. We get videos, we get social media, we get, of course, we get um, um, you know, fake news and, and misleading news at times as well. But the bottom line is that after all is said and done, uh, the internet in the Ukraine has been surprisingly resilient. And it turns out there are a couple of reasons uh, that 
the new the um, Washington Post at least theorizes that this might be the case. Um, interestingly enough, they point out that well, Russian relies on the internet too, so they want the internet mm. to actually work, so that when they get there, they have an internet that works. Um, the other is that you know Ukraine obviously understands how important it is for so much of what they're doing that if say uh, an, uh, an internet location, a physical location, uh, you know that is a, like a hub for a lot of internet connectivity gets destroyed, they actually one of the things they prioritize is getting out there and fixing it. Uh, the other thing, of course, that gets mentioned frequently are, of course, uh, Musk's Starlink satellites, which uh -huh. is also a component of how things are staying as resilient as they are. There are something like several thousand of these uh, dishes out, uh, spread out across the Ukraine right now. How much they can be shared, I have no idea. How they're being used, I really don't know. But the fact is, it's another way that makes the internet connectivity significantly more resilient. But as I was reading the article, it dawned on me that, in all honesty, the internet was designed for exactly this from huh. day one, right? From, from 40, 50 years ago when, when ARPANET started and, and turned into the internet, things like resiliency and redundancy and multiple path routing um, were built into the fundamental protocols that we still use today. So that, yeah, you know, if your data center over here that has a bunch of important routers to the internet gets taken out, the internet is designed to reroute the traffic. And I think that that too is a, a, an overlooked component of exactly why things are working much better than I think people expected it to. Mm. Yeah, be, you know, I, I think some of the reason why we don't know how the uh, Starlinks have been deployed and how they're working is because, you know, you don't want to give away information like that that could be sure. uh, used, you know. Um, matter of fact, I think that's a lot of why we don't hear about certain things or certain stories we don't hear because uh, it's an unusual situation from the media standpoint. Usually there are two sides and one side would have its interests saying we don't want to publicize this and the other side would have different interests but in this case you've one side that security reasons doesn't want to say you know why they've uh you know not you know, and, you know like how things are working or counterattacks and stuff and if the other side is just suppressing all information so it's kind of interesting um so maybe after afterwards months from now Oh yeah, might have I some think... interesting stories to read. Uh, you know, whether you're interested in the military side of it or the technology side of it, you know, I'd love to see a write-up months from now. You know, hopefully that's as long as it takes for everything to be over and peace to be restored. That uh, you know, oh, how were the Starlinks used? Yes, yes. And... Or, or you know, somewhere there's a report entitled "Heroes in the Data Center" because there were these you know folks yeah. that went above and beyond to make sure that even the traditional data centers survived much better than um, than expected. And particularly because we know that in Ukraine there was a, a you know a thriving tech community, absolutely, and yeah. a lot of really good developers and IT professionals. Yes, there. Um, so of course I'm sure they're all doing a lot of this and you know it'd be great to hear either articles about them or maybe directly from them in the future when it's all over uh all the stuff that they did I know at least you and I and I think maybe our listener too will uh will love to uh know about that stuff 
My assumption, one of the things I think that is responsible for the um, unexpectedness of its resiliency is that I think until now, until recently, just how heavily invested in technology Ukraine has been uh, was underestimated by by the general public. I don't think they realize. I think, like I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they, they kind of still have this, this Cold War um, post-Soviet era vision of what Eastern Europe looks like. And that is definitely not the case for Ukraine. Um, you know, a thriving modern modern uh, uh, economy and technology is what's going on there. And so, you know, the fact that they have had really good internet to begin with, uh, is in part responsible for the resilience and its its ability to uh, to continue operating during uh, threats like this. But like I said, I, I thought the that one comment that uh, you know it's possible that the Russians are intentionally not being quite as destructive as they would want to be, mm-hmm. only because yeah. you know once they get there, well, they need internet too, right? Mm-hmm. They rely on it just as much, if not more. Uh, so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic. And like you said, it'll be interesting in several months to find out what the what stories and and analyses of it all uh, come out. Yeah. Um, speaking of things that started many years ago and are now amazingly in fruition, uh, you mentioned something here about uh, podcasts. Yeah. So I saw a story willing to on the verge about how there are a lot of news podcasts about. Ukraine right now, that's the situation. And, you know, as a news delivery mechanism, podcasting is kind of interesting because, of course, you know, TV has the immediate thing, right? They can breaking news, they can go right in and, you know, here's what's happening right now live. Mm-hmm. Podcasting doesn't have that, but a lot of news doesn't have that. You know, newspapers never had that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, you know, online sites that, you know, are blog based, you know, they're not, they might be able to publish quick little breaking things, but it takes time to write an article to do interviews and, and talk. So there are certain types of news that seem to work really well with podcasts because, you know, as a, I'm thinking audio only here, you know, audio only can be produced relatively quickly and it can go in depth. You know, it doesn't really cost any more to have a, you know, a half hour segment than a 10 minute segment, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of you don't have airtime, you need to book for it, you know, mm-hmm. Um, it's not hard to, you know, audio podcasts don't have to be heavily edited like video does. Uh, so, you know, you can have these long in-depth things and, you know, you had this culture of podcasting where you'd look into a story as sometimes as it developed in real time, like all the murder mystery Mm -hmm. podcasts Mm -hmm. that sometimes were actually, you know, it wasn't like, oh, there was a, a murder that was solved. Let's do a 10 episode series on it. Sometimes it was like, there's this ongoing investigation. Let's do a weekly podcast and just bring people up to date on it. And when they do solve the murder, it'll be a nice bookend to the whole podcast. And a situation like this war seems to have hit a sweet spot for news and how podcasting works, where there's a lot of people interested in more in-depth stuff. It doesn't necessarily need video. It doesn't necessarily, breaking news, I've noticed it's, there, there is kind of a slowness to the news that comes out of Ukraine. You know, you can't expect to put CNN or BBC on and like see live, here's what's going on right now. Um, Usually it's like you get updated what happened in the last 12 hours, 24 hours, whatever, which a podcast can do. And so a lot of podcasts have come up that are dealing with what's going on in Ukraine now that are new podcasts 
people are still discovering them. And then, you know, hopefully soon when the situation's better, they would go away and be kind of time capsules of like, you know, this kind of thing. If you think on a news uh, show, you may have like a news program. Typically, you don't start it and say, we're going to have this special news program on while the situation exists. And then the news program will be done. Typically, you have a news program that says, we're going to cover world events and we're going to keep going forever. Right. You know, or until somebody cancels us. Um, <laughs> but you don't have to, you know, with podcasts, you don't have to do that. You could go and say, we're going to have a news program and it may just be one season. It's interesting because I sometimes struggle with that. There are podcasts where um, I have seen people promote a podcast. And mm-hmm. one of the things I do is I'll go look and see, okay, fine. Are they still in production? No, they're not. They stopped producing like a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. But the podcast was never intended to last a year, you know, to last in perpetuity. It's a, um, in a sense, it's a really long segmented audiobook, or it's a real, it's it's a series with an end. Um, they're covering a topic from one from beginning to end by for whatever yeah. their definitions are, um, and I I find that both interesting and still somehow jarring because I still have the old school mindset of what podcasts are, um, like what we're doing, right? We just get yeah. together every week or two and and talk about stuff. That's one form of podcasting, absolutely. But this other one where you've got a, a fixed amount of content that you're going to break up into chunks, and then when you're done with all the chunks, you're done with the podcast, that's a different mod, That's a different model. It's a different delivery mechanism, but it's also a very valuable one. And I, I, I agree. I Like you, I, I kind of hope that there won't be anything worth talking about uh, when it comes to live action in Ukraine. Uh, you know, in, in a few months, uh, whether or not that that comes to fruition is unclear. But the bottom yeah. line is that hopefully, not only do the podcasts have an end, but so does the things that they're talking about. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's almost kind of like when you when I, you know, somebody with a journalism degree, you put a lot of time in my life thinking about journalism and the past and the future, you know, present and future and all of that. And thinking mm-hmm. of like the demise of newspapers and even, you know, okay, radio and television and cable news and the internet and all these different ways that there are publications, types of publications there are. Podcasting kind of snuck in there and it, you know, in a weird way where now definitely if I was going to list all the different ways that news is disseminated, mm-hmm. I would put podcasting in the short list of major ways that you disseminate news, but it's not new. It's not like podcasting was born this year and here's a new way to disseminate news. It's kind of snuck in there and suddenly you realize, Oh, this has to be even retroactive. It's funny because podcasts, like I mentioned earlier, podcasts, I think they've been around for like 15 years or longer. I I, I don't know exactly when I know that I was my first podcast could easily be 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, you know, podcast that I created for Ask Leo. It's been through several iterations, of course, but uh, it, I just find it really fascinating that podcasting was really popular for a while, mm-hmm. and then it kind of faded away, right? There wasn't a whole lot going on with it. And then maybe, I don't know, three, four years ago, all of a sudden podcasts were everywhere. All of a sudden, uh, you know, big media players were, were making plays for podcasting networks. All of a sudden, a lot of the content that we had been used to listening to on radio was showing up in podcast, either mm-hmm. in addition to or in, instead of. Um, it's just, it's been truly fascinating and it makes complete sense that uh, now that more of the general public actually understands what a podcast is, and have the technology in their pocket 
to actually subscribe to whatever it is they're interested in, mm-hmm. that uh, more and more podcasts would in fact be getting made. And I have to admit, on the way, um, um, I ran an errand this morning, and as I was running around, I listened to uh, you know a podcast from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, just theirs is. You know, theirs is not a podcast with an end in sight. It's their daily tech briefing. But still, it's that same kind of idea where, you know, normally I suppose we would have read, listened to this on the radio, but we yeah. would have had to have been listening at the right time and on the right station. And now it's like, yeah, you know, now's a convenient time. Hit play. Yeah, I, it, it is interesting. I mean, there's, there's this weird, you know, podcasting has its roots in radio. And Yet radio, we think of as one of the oldest right. forms of media. Right. Um, the oldest form of digital media, or not digital, I'd say maybe technology media. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, all you had before was really print. And yet podcasting, yeah, continues to surprise us. And at its heart, it's really no more than radio. It's time-shifted radio. <laughs> What's funny is that when you started to say at its heart, podcasting is... Yeah. Um, you you're, you went for radio. I went to HTML because ultimately <laughs> podcasts are nothing more than a specially formatted, actually XML file yeah. um, with, you know, that point to an MP3 file. But it's just interesting that we both view these things ever so slightly different and we're both right. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's been fun to watch the resurgence of podcasts. The only problem I have with them these days is that there is there's so much good content out there. And I'm still stuck with only 24 hours in the day. And there's just like way too many podcasts where there's like two guys that just go on and on about technology every week for like an hour. I know. It's just <laughs> we're part of the problem. Yeah, so yeah, we are we're part of the uh, uh, yeah, I consider it a problem. It's like I don't have time to listen to all of those, yet I'm contributing to the problem every week. Yeah, well. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so yes. the um the big news that we're not going to talk about of course is the um the events that took place during the Oscars on Sunday night. Yeah, let's, we should let's avoid that. Everybody's talking about that. However, sure. Um, the fact is Coda, uh, a movie that was produced yeah. by Apple yep. won best picture mm-hmm. and that uh, made the New York times, uh, I've got a link to, again, an article from today's two New York times, uh, about that. And it is the first time a streaming service mm-hmm. has captured best picture at the Oscars. Yeah. Not Netflix, not Amazon. Not, you know, any, you know, any of those others, Apple came in and out of nowhere in a couple short years. I don't know that I'd say out of nowhere, except that, you know, all of them, when you talk about um, Amazon yeah. Prime and Netflix and um, even Hulu a little bit, um, HBO Max, uh, Apple, they all kind of came out of nowhere in recent, in recent well, years. Well, I mean, right? Netflix and Amazon have been around a lot longer and, and trying a lot longer to be like, you know, let's produce Oscar-worthy films. Right. Um, so it's kind of surprising that, you know, they attempted and hadn't quite gotten that prize yet. And then on Apple's first try for uh, Best Picture, they got it. Not, not maybe their first try to actually get the award because certainly some of the Tom Hanks stuff uh, that they had released before, there are mm-hmm. a couple things that, that were dramatic films that I could have, you know, may have, been something that could have been nominated but uh 
but you know the first time that a apple tv plus film appeared plus you know apple tv plus also won the emmy for best comedy series this year so you know depending upon how you look at the emmys emmys have best drama and best comedy two separate things some people may look at one as the top award the others the top award you know it's like for me it you know which wins best comedy is probably the more interesting but a lot of people would say the drama is actually the equivalent to best picture but apple's got best comedy with ted lasso and best picture with coda right so uh, there's you know you know you, you, we talk about like when stuff goes wrong at a technology company oh somebody's getting fired you know well <laughs> well some stuff goes right like this you got to hopefully think somebody's that, getting a bonus yes oh yeah there's <laughs> there I'm sure the board of directors at Apple is very happy with the people they put in charge of Apple TV plus. But that, it's uh, kind of interesting because the, the New York times column um, mm-hmm. actually goes into why is Apple doing this? What's their reasoning mm-hmm. behind this um, as a corporation? Why are they spending so much money on this? Because they're not, the revenue they're getting is the what is it five dollars a month subscription from Apple for Apple Plus TV ten yeah is it ten now yeah oh no it's always been ten oh okay for oh. Apple TV Plus yeah yeah so but point is though is 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 that where they expect to recoup all of this um, and or are they still in investment mode with um, uh, a goal or oh, I'm sorry it is five dollars a month I should you're right you. five dollars a month. Okay. Um, I uh, if are they still in investment mode for some goal that we're just not aware of? Right? Do they have some long term plan that really helps them recoup their investment on this kind of production? And it's unclear. And the the article goes on to actually make that same raise that same issue for things like Netflix and Amazon and some of the others. Now, Netflix is, I believe, finally cash positive right now. They're actually making money, but for a long time, they were in investment mode. And the question then is, if these companies get themselves to a point where they are no longer in investment mode, where they are turning Mm -hmm. a crank and making money, does the incentive for them to then spend lots of money and make these truly excellent films or shows or whatever, does that drop down? In other words, are we in the heyday of this kind of production because there's all this competition going on right now? Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, they are making money with the $5 a month, right there. I mean, Apple uh, reports their services, you know, they lump everything together with iCloud drive and Apple TV plus and Apple music and all that. They lump it together and they're making a ton of money off of um, services. So there is money coming in. Um, I, I think uh, it's hard to tell whether they're making or how close they are to making a profit, but their Apple's also got other things, other ways to benefit from their services than say Netflix. Netflix is a pure play. You know, it's like they, you could take the amount of money they cut coming in from subscriptions Right. And how much they spend, right. and figure out how well the company does. But a company like Apple, you know, wants to sell Apple TV boxes. They want to sell iPhones. They want to sell, you know, Macs and iPads and all that. And having this service tied into it, you know, is a benefit to to that. Um, Amazon, to a lesser extent, because they've got their Fire TV and and tablets and other things going on. Um, 
So it really depends on the, you know, the, the company. So what you're saying is that that secondary benefit is it's uh, something hook, hooking somebody into the, into an ecosystem, right? For Apple, yeah, it might or, be maybe, maybe they sell some more machines or get some more people doing more Apple things that aren't necessarily TV related. And in Amazon's case, I think it's pretty clear that um, they're selling prime subscriptions and they're just getting people used to spending money with Amazon over and over again. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are those side benefits to it that are harder to measure. Right. Um, and also there's the, there's the, uh, I guess the corporate version of FOMO, you know, if you're missing out, um, <laughs> you, you know, you, you have, okay. If you've got companies like Amazon and Google and, you know, with YouTube, you know, playing in this space, mm-hmm. can Apple just ignore it and say, well, we're unlikely to make a ton of money at it. So let's just not do it. You know, it's like, they, they kind of got to get in there. Right. If just to not let the others dominate, because if the others dominate the space, it could be difficult as a hardware maker. I mean, you know, if Google were to do, you know, have more exclusive stuff that was only available on Android and there were other deals made, then you could look at it like, well, Apple could be shut out and it could be like hard and people could stop buying iPhones because they went and get a device where they could watch all of their TV shows and stuff. But like, Apple TV Plus is available on Samsung TVs. It's available on yep. you know Roku. Amazon Fire devices and all that. And I think it's kind of this uh you know you know truce that all these companies have that it's like they all want all their content to be available across all devices. So they're kind of like, "All right, we'll carry your you know we'll allow your app on our device if you allow our app on your device." And as long as we keep that going and everybody plays nice, then nobody can dominate and it'll all be good. But the minute somebody starts saying, nope, we're going to be exclusive to whatever, then things might start to fall apart. And Mutually assured destruction. Um, <laughs> in a way, streaming, mutually <laughs> destroyed, uh, mutually assured streaming destruction, I guess. Um, speaking of which, you raised an interesting question in our notes about the future of movies. Um, yeah. I think that that's an open question. Obviously, these these places, these uh, houses are they're doing both. To be honest, they're in many cases they're playing both the movie theater and the streaming war at the same time. If you take a look at somebody like Disney, uh, yeah. which is another player that we you know falls into this exact same category, uh, they are releasing a bunch of stuff streaming only, usually series. There are some movies that they're releasing streaming only, or in some cases streaming first. What I thought was interesting, though, is they are still producing movies out of their house that go directly to theater first for a while. Yeah. And I, it's, I think all of them are experimenting with that model to find out what the right mix is. You know, Do we uh, release things in a theater first? Do we release it simultaneously? Um, do we yeah. uh, do it streaming only? Uh, you, know, the, the, you mentioned that um, Spider-Man. Uh, no Way Home, I think it is, yeah. is now the number sixth highest grossing film. That still hasn't come out on streaming, I don't think. You can rent it. Well, yeah, it, it is. Uh, well, okay, so the interesting thing about No Way Home is, well, first of all, it is number six. Right. But the fact that it's even that it's up so high when you're we're still in a pandemic, right? right. I mean, the theaters are open again. Right. But let's face it, the numbers aren't, you know, may never get back to what they were in 2019. Um, there's still going to be people that don't want to go to the theaters. The theaters themselves have a lot, a lot of clothes and a lot have revamped to do the big theater seats. 
right? right? They took the time to accelerate that change. So now you have a lot of places that were, you know, before 250 seat theaters that are now 100 seat theaters and stuff. So you've got a lot of that, you're making it seem like it's almost impossible. Like 2019 should be the, the, the ultimate high and and never be reached again for box office gross and have uh, Spider-Man rocket up to number six during this is incredible. And showing that movie, you know, going to movie theaters isn't necessarily dead. Oh no, not um, at all. But it is, uh, you know, so you have two mixed signals. You've got a lot of shows uh, going straight, straight to streaming, even big ones like Dune, you know, which was both theaters and streaming Mm -hmm. spider-man actually so we streamed it but the deal was that it's still in its buy stage right so you can buy it to stream now it's 20 bucks so when we have a nice home theater set up you know to enjoy movies at home there were three of us and we were like oh this is you can only buy it you can't rent it and i thought well, wait a minute, twenty dollars is still cheaper, cheaper by than a lot. The theater, yeah. Then what it would cost us to go to the theater, and we could sit here at home and make popcorn and take bathroom breaks and yes. not be around other people. So it was a no-brainer. Now I, I guess I own it. Um, I could watch all the bloopers. Actually, we did watch the bloopers afterwards, which you, we couldn't have seen if we paid more money in the theater. We would not be able to see the bloopers. Interesting. Um, so and there's other little features and stuff I may ra- get around to watch. Uh, kind of like the DVD features, but they're now part of the streaming thing. So, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I don't know where that, that $20 goes into the box office gross. I assume it goes into there. Like, I assume when they say it's $1.8 billion that my $20 is in there, even though I watched it at home. But right. it's box office gross. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how they how the, they calculate it. But, and I, I think that, too, is something that is... Um, being revisited and rethought and reconsidered, um, not just by the theaters, how they actually do the accounting, yeah. and also by the uh, by the principals, by the actors. Uh, who was it? Um, one of the Marvel movie stars yeah. ended up suing because it, Scarlett Johansson was that ScarJo? Yeah, yeah. Um, because the movie was released, I think they did simultaneous release, yeah. which meant that her contract, which was based on the box office and not streaming, um, meant that she got a lot less money because it wasn't released in the theater only. Um, I have no idea how that turned out. And I can almost guarantee you that every contract since now somehow takes that oh, yeah. into account. But uh, those are the kinds of lessons that I think a lot of people, both uh, uh, movie execs and uh, the folks working on the movies are now all trying to make sure they future-proof themselves for. And, you know, even you were talking about the metrics, the box office gross, it, it's always been a bit ridiculous because it doesn't take into account inflation anyway. Um, so you have, you know, movies that, now we're getting way more per ticket sale, mm-hmm. uh, you know, beating out movies that actually did better in theaters in the seventies and eighties and, and all. I, mm-hmm. I actually looked at the, the list of the top 50 grossing movies of all time as of now. Right. And almost all of them, except for a handful were 2010 or later. And that's simply because ticket prices went up. Yes. You know, so there was like Titanic was number three from 1997. And that was an outlier. I think the next on the list that was from before 2000 was like number 41. 
I mean, so it, it's kind of ridiculous to measure a movie's success. It would be interesting to try that. and do an inflation-adjusted comparison. Yeah. Yeah, or I think that would be a little bit more raw ticket sales. I mean, I'd go with raw ticket sales as a something that's not as complex. I mean, if people want to go and see a movie over and over again, sure, those should count, right? That should be a a thing Mm -hmm. where hey, that movie is a sensation. People went to see it two or three times, but you know, just count each time somebody buys a ticket as one and then have box office ticket sales instead of uh, gross. As the metric, and then I, I wonder though, interesting if list. population changes though. <laughs> there, well, there's that, but the other thing yeah. is that that then incentivizes the studios to um, underprice the tickets to get more people in the in the in the good, theater. good, <laughs> which is good. But yeah. if if they're in the business um, of making money. Yeah, then, um, you know, that's not necessarily in their best interest. No, I think it's. I mean, I think if a studio wanted to say. Hey, we're rich. Let's lower the price. I, I don't know if you can get the movie theater change to agree. I think you'd have to have the movie theater change to say, you know, that they don't let the, the price go down. But if some some agreement was reached to let people go into a movie cheaply in order to drive up the numbers, right? Then I think that's fine because it's like, oh, you care more about that statistic than you do actually making money, which will, which you know, takes kind of takes care of itself. Yeah. You know, the, the ones that want to care about the money will care about the money. And the ones that want to care about how many people saw their, their movie will care about that. And I don't think it would happen, though. I don't think that I the theater chains would. But like if a company said, hey, we want to charge $10 a ticket across the board, I think the theater chains would say, yeah, that's nice, but we're not doing that. But I do think an inflation-adjusted comparison is still yeah. possible. It would be very, very interesting to, to understand. I have to admit, um, we have not been in a movie theater in probably two and a half years now. And we would if our schedules lined up with, with a couple of friends that we normally do this with. But um, I'm really, really appreciating being able to uh, watch movies at home uh, when they're released. Yeah. I think it was last year and a half ago when I think it was Wonder Woman 1984 was one of the first ones to actually do it simultaneously. And for me, it's a slam dunk. I stream it every time. Um, that's just, like you said, it's it's your own space. It's your own schedule. It's your own food. It's your own bathroom break. It just makes so much more sense. There are some movies that I would want to see on a bigger screen, mm-hmm. but uh, but those th- there aren't as many of those as there are simply good movies being released. Yeah, I um I've only seen one movie in a theater since March 2020. Um and I do miss it because I used to go a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think for me the the difference is I do like being at home and having my own home theater experience, and there's a lot of nice things. I have a hard time focusing my full attention on the movie <laughs> when my laptop is like right there, right there. I mean, I I think I went. You know, uh, uh, with Spider-Man, I went the first half of the movie without touching my laptop. And then maybe I broke down for about 10, 15 minutes just to see what was going on and check my email. And then I got back into the movie. But in a movie theater, what's nice is it's for me, you sit down and no matter what's going to happen, if it's going to be good, bad, hold my attention or not. I'm just not going to do anything else except watch the movie. Um, So I get a benefit out of it. You know, even if it's like, well, 
it wasn't that good of a movie, but the cinematography was nice or the acting was really good. Yeah. Um, whereas I don't get that at home. If it is not a good movie that holds my attention, I'll miss out on the parts that are actually good. So I'll definitely be going back to the theater starting gradually this year, I think. It's um, funny. Nine times out of 10, I reach for my laptop when it's like, you know, that person looks really familiar. Where do we know that? Oh, from? yeah. Well, but <laughs> that, you know what? That's why you there's a what? shortcut to IMDb in my. <laughs> well, but I like, you know, it's the kind of the challenge of you sit there and you're like, that person looks really familiar. It'll come to me. And at home, it's like, no, it won't come to me because I'm going to look at my laptop right now. <laughs> but in the movie theater, I might get the satisfaction of 20 minutes later when I see them in another scene saying, oh, I know who they are. <laughs> I, I, got, I got one for you coming up a little later when I talk about um, about move or, yeah, movies. And uh, uh, that just blew me away when I did the IMDb lookup. It's one of those no way kind of situations. Okay, but, okay. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so it's been, it's been interesting to see what's going to happen. Um, I am... Uh, the fact that Apple won an, an Oscar is actually honestly no surprise to me. I think that we are honestly in a in a kind of a golden age of um, uh, TV, movie, series, video production uh, because there's just so much really good stuff out there right now. Right. Once, well, once plus, again, I'm of limited. Mm -hmm. Coda was a, a really good movie. So have you have you seen it? I have not seen. Oh it. yes, oh yes. I I saw it when it first came out and. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with the Oscars. For the most part of the movies that I end up liking yeah. never win Oscars. And the movies that win Oscars typically don't appeal to me. Um, this yeah, Coda is a feel-good movie. Mm -hmm. That's it, it, it. It's not like a drama, like English patient kind of thing, you know, where it's like, ah, uh, you know. I assume um, there were no explosions. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, <laughs> but it's a, it's a, it's a movie that will make you feel emotions and you feel good. And uh, the characters are interesting and it's a, it's a good movie. It's not, you know, it's good. It's good to see a movie like that. When, like you said, no explosions, no massive quests, no epic tales. It's, it's like a movie about a family and what they go through and some things and, it deserves to win. So I, I'm glad to glad to see it win. I, I was rooting for it. Yeah, good, good. Mm -hmm. So you were actually stepping backwards in towards uh, Ukraine again, kind of. Yeah, kind um, of. But you mentioned an article on The Verge. Yeah, I, I was actually interested in your opinion on this. Um, you know, with all of the boycotts and sanctions of Russia, um, there's some technology that comes from Russia. One of the better known uh, anti-malware makers for Windows mm -hmm. is a Russian company, Kaspersky or Kaspersky. Yeah, as Kaspersky, I say, it. yes, yeah, and and you know I've heard different things over the years. I just know if not being a Windows guy, if, still if I was asked to like name name three anti-malware pieces of software, mm -hmm. that would have probably been one of the three I would have named. Now, the U.S. government added that software to uh, its list of um, you know, national security threats. Right. In other words, any U.S. government or U.S. government-related companies are not supposed to use that software anymore. Uh, it's not the first items to be added to the list. There are a couple of Chinese uh, manufacturers of hardware, mostly, that are on that list as well. Mm -hmm. um, but there is some concern, I guess, with the software being produced from Russia and it being this kind of deep malware 
software that you would install on your machine and have to tr- have to trust. You have to trust deeply. your security software implicitly yeah. and completely. Yes. yes. So yes. the question is, is you know, of course, the, the company itself denies that they do anything at all to compromise anybody's security, and they're above board and all of that. But uh, I don't know. I'm interested. I don't know which anti-malware software, if any, you recommend nowadays, and where Kaspersky. Sure. Is on that list, kind of. So it's interesting because um, I first wrote an article about Kaspersky, gosh, maybe four or five years ago, something Mm -hmm. like that. The the concerns about them being of Russian origin actually turn out to be nothing new. There have always been uh, concerns, claims, um, uh, just I I don't even know what what else to call it. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about it is that over the years, to the best of my knowledge, not once has any claim ever been proven or turned out to be accurate. Mm. Um, so my, my sense for Kaspersky specifically is that, yeah, you know what? There's, there's a pretty good chance that the company is doing everything right. They are, they are walking the talk, and that talk is that they're not puppets of the Russian government. Um, I don't know that for a fact. Um, nobody can. But that's my sense these days. However, um, and I did I did update that, that article, by the way. It's uh, uh, askleo.com slash 28269. Um, how safe is Kaspersky Internet Security? Um, my, my sense is we just don't know. They're probably safe. We have no reason to believe otherwise. But, and here's the big but that really came to a head over the course of the last couple of months. Um, they are headquartered in Russia. Absolutely. So that kind of implies that uh, the Russian government, uh, Putin specifically, has an inordinate amount of power Mm. to potentially force Kaspersky to do something that they might not currently be doing, that they might not want to do, but they might have to do um, Mm. in order to um, uh, remain viable or potentially even alive for all I know. Uh, So the the concern here is that there's no data that says there's a problem, but there's also no reason to take the risk. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly the U.S. government, I think, is taking uh, a prudent step by disallowing Kaspersky on their machines, because if you think about it, if something were to happen, if if somehow Kaspersky were to be compromised in that way, yeah, they're going to target the U.S. government right away. That's like number one on their hit parade. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the U.S. government and related uh, uh, organizations should not be using it. And honestly, like I said, there is no real reason for the majority of uh, Windows users today uh, to need something like Kaspersky. There are uh, plenty of alternatives that are more trustworthy. But, um, and you asked about my recommendation, my recommendation specifically for Windows 10 and Windows 11 is to use the software that's built in. Mm. Microsoft Security, aka Windows Defender, aka yeah. Microsoft Defender, they've gone through like name changes, uh, is plenty. It's absolutely fine for the vast majority of Windows users. The bottom line is that, you know, you don't really need to be paying extra for a third-party anti-malware tool. Um, And if you do, if you, for whatever reason, you don't trust Microsoft, you want somebody else to do the job, um, or your machine is one of those machines where, for whatever reason, um, the Microsoft security package has an adverse impact, then there are lots of other 
um, third-party tools that you could choose that are um, just as good or certainly as good as um, as Kaspersky is. Uh, you know, tools like ABG and Avira and Malwarebytes and others, they each come with their pros and cons, right? There's no, there's no perfect tool. But uh, but those are the kinds of tools that I think um, people, if they need a third-party tool, can look at evaluating. But honestly, I don't think you need one to begin with. So yeah, my when I first wrote the article a few years ago, uh, somebody was asking, they had Kaspersky on their machine, and they had heard all of these rumors back in the day, and they were asking, should I uninstall? Should I change? And my answer at that time was, no, it's not worth it. Nothing's ever been proven if it's working for you great. Uh, leave it alone. My answer has now changed. If you've got Kaspersky installed, then um, there's no reason to take the risk, however that risk, however small that risk might be, and uh, go ahead and, and switch to something else. Okay. Well, that, uh, that makes sense. And it is interesting to see. I, I know Windows uh, Defender was probably the last time I had Windows installed somewhere. There's probably an earlier, much earlier version of Windows Defender is what I was yep. just using. Yep. Um, so I'm glad to see that that is uh, that's the recommendation today. Yeah, no, they've they've done a really a really good job of um, improving that tool over the course of the last few years, um, and um, I'm I'm very happy, and I'm I'm not alone, right? In in our space, in in the Windows tech pundit space, if that's what I am, um, there are a lot of people that feel the same way. So, yep. Cool. Well, cool. I mean, uh, it's the only other item I, I uh, a little follow up on our talk about. We talked about Happy Scribe and Otter.ai for transcriptions. Yes. Before, and I actually went through and started using Happy Scribe. I bought a chunk of mm -hmm. time and started using it to transcribe some of my course videos. And um, then I decided to compare that with Otter. And I did, and I really couldn't find a big difference between the two of them. Okay. Um, they neither were perfect, but both were really good, way above what they estimated, probably because what I'm doing in my course videos is I'm talking slowly, enunciating, and it's just one voice, right. you know, going through and explaining things. No Whereas a lot noise. of their, yeah. you know, like percentage of accuracy is people in conversations and meetings and things like that. Right. So I ended up going with otter.ai because mm -hmm. it was far cheaper. They basically, you're paying monthly for a huge allotment to just make sure that, you know, somebody doesn't come through and that pipe thousands of hours of, of uh, audio through them. So in other words, for someone like me, uh, basically unlimited per month. And I was able to actually, you know, get a workflow that was okay. It wasn't perfect. I had to do a lot of little manual things. But it was doable that in about an hour or so of work, I was able to transcribe a course and apply that to my uh, videos at Vimeo and um, and complete that work. Um, so yeah, I, I actually plan on kind of announcing this week that now all my courses at my site have subtitles or closed captions technically oh, right, um, right. Uh, on them that uh, you know which is something that made them a little different they didn't have that even though my regular videos like in youtube certainly did so um so that was good it was a big success it didn't end up cost me that much money at all it cost mm -hmm. me a bunch of time but it was doable and i will be able to sustain it with future courses i'll be able to use probably otter.ai but it's nice to have a backup of happy scribe being reasonable as well um to transcribe my course videos, my non-YouTube course videos. 
Does um, otter.ai have an app on the iPhone? Yes, I believe it was you that told me about it um, <laughs> a long time ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, the, the reason I mentioned that is because I, of course, grabbed a copy of it again when once you mm -hmm. reminded me of it, and have been playing with it a little bit as well. And yeah. remember, last week I said that the uh, recorder app on the Google Pixel allowed you to just you know like record, and it would transcribe in real time right in front of you. And that's how I did a couple of the the transcriptions for videos. Um, Otter does the same thing. But it will do it on all of all the phones, right? It's not just a Pixel phone. It's right. it's the it's the kind of a thing that um, yeah you could reuse on any phone. And I was curious if that was then something you could do on the on the iPhone as well. Yeah, I mean that's one of their main things. I think is being able to launch the Otter app and then just have it transcribe sitting uh, in the middle talk. of the table during your meeting. And yeah, and, have and they actually have everybody. a bunch of whole bunch of features that I wasn't even looking at that transcribe meetings and everything. Whole bunch right. of stuff, and you know my my use is a fairly niche use of transcribing, you know, course videos. Right. Um, but it, but it, it worked out. Um, so yeah. So just cool. to follow up on that Cool. and, uh, yeah. So, so, so you have been All right. watching the new halo series. So, um, yes, last night we watched the first episode of halo. Now I have to throw out a caveat for anybody that might be like a, a halo diehard. I've played the game once. Uh, or twice <laughs> on on an Xbox, and yeah, yeah, it's an engaging game. It is clearly a time sink. It is clearly something that um, you develop your manual dexterity for the game over time. Yeah. It's a classic thing where you learn how to do what you need to do to survive. Um, so I didn't really invest a lot in the game. However, um, we ended up watching just because it looked like, okay, this is interesting science fiction. Uh, yeah, we'll recognize you know the character because he's on every box of, of, of uh, on, on every Xbox ad almost. Yeah. And um, it's actually kind of an interesting series. It has potential. It is a series. I don't know if it's eight or 10 episodes. It's weekly getting released um, on Paramount+. Plus. So we've only watched the one episode so far. I will warn folks that it is um, bloody um, in the sense that both humans and aliens have a tendency to uh, either explode or explode in part, uh, graphically mm. so. So be prepared for that if that's something you're, you want to avoid. This isn't a show for you. But they do take some interesting direction. Now, I mentioned earlier that... Uh, there was an IMDB scenario here. It was like, you know, the, one of the characters, I'm not even going to say who, one of the characters uh, shows up and we look at him and say, you know, he looks familiar. He looks vaguely familiar. Hmm. Um, and it was one of those things where, okay, fine. This is why I have my shortcut to IMDB. Uh, I looked up Halo, looked up the character, um, didn't recognize the name. Didn't recognize the profile picture per se, but those are often misleading anyway. And went and looked at his filmography and down and down. So have you watched Orange is the New Black? Yes. I challenge you to recognize this character from that show. I will say nothing more. Do you plan to watch Halo? Well, Paramount Plus is like the one service. Oh, you don't have it right now. Okay. If I, if I were to describe to Paramount Plus, 
I think I have everything, <laughs> but you know, yeah, just you're, something you're in the would, situation I'm in. It's like, okay, dang it. Star Trek uh, is there. So I have to have that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Paramount and then there's a, a couple of things I want to see on Paramount plus, and this is what happened. You know, it used to be that Peacock and Paramount plus were the two I were missing. And then I gave in and now it's like, you know, oh, we'll do Peacock <laughs> for a couple months, but nope, there's other things and there's new stuff. And all of this and now, you know, so yeah, well, if, if, I, I'm just going to hold back because I, I suspect that, you know, you, you kind of like the same sci-fi ish things that sure. I do. Um, if you fall off that cliff and um, end up subscribing, you end up watching Halo. Um, like I said, just keep an That's eye cool. out. It's, it's funny. It's one of those things where I looked at him and <laughs> I, I looked at the listing and I like, yes. Okay. Now I see it. And my wife basically said many times, no way, no yeah. way. And indeed it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's him, but it's not, it's very, it's, it's funny. It's really, well, funny. anyway, you know, they're enjoying it. So I'm looking forward to seeing more episodes in the coming weeks. It was cool. Yeah. And, and I, you know, the funny thing of course is I am that diehard halo player that i've played every halo including the most recent one oh. on the xbox so it's kind of funny that the you know, the critique that the i've heard on the series is that uh, the main character master mm. chief yeah feels different he's not the same character if you will as he is yeah. in the game his his i don't know if it's his attitude or his his motivations or whatever um so if if your expectations are that it's the, the game yeah. transcribed to a series, then you'll probably be disappointed. However, if you, you are um, interested in, uh, it's the way I described the Hobbit trilogy movie. Yeah. It's um, a bunch of really familiar characters in a really familiar universe uh, telling a completely different story. <laughs> and uh, that actually, I think, probably applies here then too. Um, you know, there'll be very, very familiar things about the show, but uh, again, it, it's it may not map directly to gameplay. All right. Hmm. Okay. Well, I will see it one day. I'm sure. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. For me, I I read a uh, a book this week. I want to mention um, John Scalzi, of course, is a well-known sci-fi author. I enjoy a lot of his books and a, a, it's one of those things where I was like, Oh, I'm done a book. What's new, you know, what should I read next? And that was the day that this new book was released. And I was like, Oh, okay. And I ended up being one of the first people to read it just because I happened to catch it on the day it was released. It's called the Kaiju preservation society. And, you know, very light uh, science fiction thing where, um, you know, that involves uh, things. It actually involves, the modern times as in like COVID and the pandemic are actually happening mm -hmm. and like, but there's also this other world that uh, people travel to where Kaiju exist. Kaiju being uh, basically a general term for Japanese movie monsters, AKA Godzilla. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, and it's a cool, and his stuff is always very light and has a little bit of humor and his designated like audible, you know, reader is always Will Wheaton for all of his books. Oh, okay. And so, you know, that adds a lot to it as well. He's great. And, uh, if, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, sometimes when I get a, a book that's six or eight hours long, that's a, that's a, you know, two weeks or three weeks for me, depending on what I'm doing. <laughs> but a John Scalzi book, you know, usually it's like three days because <laughs> I'll take every moment I can to listen to another little bit of it and, and stay up late listening to it because I want to find out what happens next, that kind of thing. Cool. Very cool. Yep. 
Uh, let's see. As always, we have no sponsors other than ourselves. So we mm-hmm. basically blatantly self-promote a couple of our own articles. The interesting one that I want to pre- uh, point people at this week is how do I downgrade Windows 11 to Windows 10? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's interesting. There, Microsoft makes it really, really easy if you do it fast enough. And if you don't, it's really, really hard. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's one of the things you want to um, go, you know, walk into understanding that. Uh, certainly, it's possible to go back to Windows 10. It's just how much effort do you really feel you need to put into it. Um, my recommendation across the board is to um, you know, learn to live with 11 if for whatever reason it rubs you the, the wrong way, because that clearly is going to last longer than 10. But um, if you can't or if you have other reasons that you need to roll back to 10, um, it is possible. It just may or may not be easy. That's askleo.com slash 143948. And yeah, as you can imagine, um, that article exists because people have been asking. That's a, such a common thing uh, for Mac users to ask. Of course, there's new versions every year. Right. And every time, you know, new version comes out, there's always a few people, can I, can I downgrade? How do I downgrade? Um, you know, usually because they, they're hoping it's easy. Something is different than what they expected, yep. or maybe some piece of software that they haven't updated in 10 years suddenly stops working. <laughs> and they think, you know, the solution, oh, is to downgrade the entire operating system. Right. And my, my response is always, oh, so is it your plan to basically downgrade to last year's operating system and stay there the rest of your life? You know, otherwise, maybe solve the problem that, you know, led you to believe that that might be the solution. Right, right. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's why I was laughing. Uh, for me, I did a um, an interesting video uh, on uh, five reasons why keeping your passwords in notes or a document is a bad idea. I've done <laughs> some recent videos on storing passwords, at, you know, using password managers. Uh-huh. And then I got a lot of comments from people saying, I just prefer to put them in a document. I right. prefer to put them in a note. Both of all the time people say, of course, that they're encrypting that document or note. Uh-huh. And I get five reasons why. And I can almost, I could have been really clickbaity on the headline here because it could have been <laughs> five reasons why keeping your passwords and notes or documents is a bad idea. And it's not what you think. <laughs> because every time I would say something like that, the initial response always is, oh, but they're encrypted, right? And yeah, I'm not complaining about that. Keeping them in a document that's encrypted perfectly secure. I have no problem with that. However, there are other problems you're not thinking about, which of course is protecting you from phishing attacks. Um, also getting uh, you know recommendations like, hey, this password has been compromised. Um, you need to change it. And also generating strong random passwords is something more likely to happen if you're using a password manager. So there's really five reasons why password managers better to use than a just putting all your passwords in a document. Um, and, and so I did yep. a video on that. Yep. I, I hear from those folks too. I, yep. uh, I may end up simply pointing them at your video now because I don't know that I want to it, spend the time to do that. It really is a kind of a cross-platform applicable thing. I oh, mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Same thing can apply. You do the same thing I do, right? We talk about, you know, I talk about Windows, you talk about Macs, but there's this, this, the Venn diagram of things that we talk about has a lot of overlap sure. in internet generic stuff, yep. uh, be it websites or passwords or all that kind of stuff. So, yep. All righty. Well, I think that pretty much does us for another week, don't you think? Yep. Sounds good. Um, as always, uh, the show notes for today's show are out at 
tehpodcast.com slash teh159. If you've got a comment or a question, you are more than welcome to leave a comment on the show notes page. We do look at those. Thanks as always for listening, and we will see you here again next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.